Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Lizzie. So over this past week, Rabbi, Sir, Lord, Jonathan, Sachs, may his memory be a blessing, died at the age of 72. He had been the chief rabbi of the UK from 1991 until 2013, but in many ways his influence and reach and Torah went, went far beyond his station as the chief rabbi of the UK. He was sort of like the living patron saint in many ways of Jews all over the world. He spoke the language of pop culture as easily as he spoke the Queen's English. Notice he was a lord, he was a sir, he was a knight. Um, As easily as he spoke yeshivish, you know, sort of like could hang in the deeply traditional orthodox world. While referencing scientific studies and philosophy, he authored many really good books. If you have a favorite among them, feel free to post in the chat. What I will miss most about him being gone from this world is that every week I listen to him teach me Torah, you know, just the weekly, taking me through the weekly Parsha on podcast, um, which of course I can still listen to, but um, he he will be missed. He will be missed. Harav Yaakov Tzvi ben David Hirsch, I quoted him once, like 10 years back, and I don't remember who said it to me. I was, I was standing with a group of knowledgeable, like maybe it was rabbinical students, maybe it was rabbis, maybe it was just Jews at Shul. I quoted him and somebody said to me, you know, it's, it's ironic that you're quoting a rabbi who wouldn't consider you a rabbi. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, but he had so much to teach. Like we clearly had some points of disagreement on like pretty important things like, you know, fundamentally about my rights as a woman to do what I do as a Jew. And yet, I loved a lot of what he said and what he wrote. Uh, He wrote about the dignity of difference, about the role of Jews perfecting the world, his claim that each one of us has a piece of Judaism, like we are a letter in the scroll of the Torah. And um, and that letter in the scroll is, is just ours, just for us. And at the very same time, being controversial in the traditional world and saying such controversial things as the Jews don't have a claim on spiritual truth, a, an exclusive claim on spiritual truth. So his ideas influence me profoundly. And, um, and I know many of you as well as you've posted and sent me, sent me notes about how sad you are about this too. I leaned on Rabbi Sachs this week as I was reading and processing the Parsha. And I want to talk about Torah. Yes, as a a meaningful break from the American political scene. Um, And also acknowledge that it is really incredible when, when you read Torah, there is no universe in which studying Torah does not then take us back around into the complex messy world of the present. It's just how it works. So this week, 
we open back up our weekly wisdom literature, our Torah, and read Parshat Chaye Sarah. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, but actually the Parsha is about the death of Sarah. And there are three basic narratives in the Parsha, and I'm taking a page out of Rabbi Dina's book here. She summarizes the Parsha and then like does a little Torah in three minutes. We're gonna do like a three minute recap right here. Um, there are three basic narratives. The first narrative is that Sarah dies and is buried at 127 years old. She's buried in the cave of the patriarchs, Ma'arata Machpelah, which is in Hebron, which remains a city today. And the Torah goes to great pains to describe Abraham's purchase of the land for this burial site. After burying his wife, enter narrative two, Abraham turns to the situation of his adult single son who he needs to marry off. And Abraham appoints a servant to go find a wife for his son, Isaac, and his servant brings home Rebecca. And as she's riding in on the camel with the servant, she sees, she sort of looks out into the distance and sees a guy. And she says, is that him? And the servant says, yes. And she covers her face with her veil. And it says she fell off her camel. I don't know whether she got off her camel or fell off her camel or was knocked off her camel. This is often interpreted as she was just so struck by love. I have my questions about it because we then learn he brought her into his tent. Isaac brought her into his tent and he loved her. And it's the first place in the Torah where it talks about love, which is so romantic and beautiful, except you actually have no idea how she feels. You just know that Isaac loved her. Where he was coming from is actually very important. When he was coming up and she was coming in on the camel, he was coming from a place called Be'er L'chai Ro'i. The well, the wellspring, L'chai of the life, L'ro'i, that sees me. And El'chai Ro'i, um, or El'ro'i was what Hagar called God when she and Ishmael, this is a chapter back, were wandering in the wilderness and she wondered if she would make it. So I'm gonna say something about that in a moment. Okay, finally, third story. Abraham dies at 175. God rests his soul. He is gathered to his ancestors and his two oldest sons, Ishmael and Isaac, come back together to bury him along with Sarah, who is already buried in Ma'arata Machpelah, the cave of the patriarchs. And after that, Isaac moves back to the same place that he was coming from before, like way before when he met Rebecca, Be'er L'chai Ro'i, and scene, and Parsha. I love Genesis because it's all narrative, but there's so much to unpack. There's so much to unpack. And so Rabbi Sachs zeroes in on this place, Be'er L'chai Ro'i. The emphasis, it keeps appearing in the text. Why was Isaac so attached to this place? So before we go on, we have to remember a little bit of context that came from last week's Parsha. Two stories. The first is about Hagar. I mentioned it a second ago. Hagar was Abraham's other wife. She's sometimes referred to as the maidservant, the Egyptian Hagar, which translates to the stranger. But all signs point to Abraham loved this woman, um, had a child with her, Ishmael. And once his first wife, Sarah, gets pregnant, Sarah says to Abraham, 
Hagar and Ishmael have got to go. You may remember this story from Rosh Hashanah. We read it every year. And it pains Abraham greatly to send them away. But he eventually does. And they eventually settle in the place where she has this experience, this, this vision of God, where she says, because God saw me. God saw me out here. She thought she was going to die, but, but God saw her and, and heard Ishmael and, and saved her. Be'er l'chai ro'i. So the other story you may be familiar with, rather famous, um, is the binding of Isaac. This is the one where God, character of God, says to Abraham, go take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and take him up on a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And, of course, at the last minute, there's a ram in the thicket, and Abraham slaughters the ram instead. But while the text is very clear that they went up the mountain together, Isaac and Abraham, the text does not say they came down together at the end of last week's Parsha. Isaac survives this, but it seems that something profound has changed in his relationship with his father. So Rabbi Shai held, reading this week's Parsha, looks at this question, what's going on with this place? And he says that Isaac, recently traumatized by his father and having just lost his mother, you know what? He goes to find comfort in his father's other wife. That's where he's going. That's why he's going to Be'er L'chai Ro'i, where he knows Hagar and Ishmael are, because he knows they'll understand how he feels. He'll, take com- he'll be comforted by them. But Rabbi Held says, not only that, he can also now offer a comfort that he wasn't able to offer before, because it's only now after this awful experience, being tied down on a rock and almost slaughtered by his revered father, that he could truly appreciate the sense of betrayal and sadness that Hagar and Ishmael must have felt when Abraham, her lover and her child's father, kicked them out of the house. And Isaac went to go find them and to cry with them and to hold each other and say, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you before, but I'm here now. I'm sorry about what happened to you. I'm sorry for what my parents did to you, and I'm here. This is all conjecture, of course. We have no idea um, why he went to Be'er L'chai Ro'i. None of this is in the pshat, in the plain reading of the text. You can't just be paying attention to the protagonist, though, and who the narrative wants us to identify with. You sort of think the story is about Abraham, and so we follow Abraham. But there, there's Abraham, yes, of course. There's also Hagar, and there's also Ishmael, and there's also Isaac, and there's also Sarah. And there are the dynamics, not just between Abraham and Hagar, Abraham and Ishmael, but between all of these characters and one another. And that's what's sort of interesting to pay attention to here And the text says nothing about the depth of all of these relationships, doesn't go nearly as far into exploring these relationships as it does into the business transaction of Abraham buying the cave of Machpelah, for example. And so we need to fill it in through guesswork and intuition and midrash. But somehow, these brothers that were separated and estranged last week were able to come together decades later to bury their father this week. 
and, and then, and even more than that, to coexist as family. Like, what incredible bravery and vulnerability that must have taken both of them, Mishmael and Isaac, and all of their families. So this place, Marat HaMachpelah, appears in the Torah. It is also an actual place on planet Earth um, in the West Bank. The Cave of the Patriarchs is how it's referred to in English, Marat HaMachpelah in Hebrew. Al-Haram al-Ibrahimi to the Muslims. Hebron is one of four holy cities to Muslims, and the Cave of the Patriarchs is the second holiest site to Jews behind the Western Wall. And at this site, currently today, that's been built up over the years, you know, as different rulers have come in and built, you know, different kinds of structures on top of the original cave, um, this site is now both a synagogue and a mosque. And given the demographics and the dynamics of the city of Hebron, um, the, and the history of violence there, specifically in prayer spaces committed by Jews and also Muslims. There are 10 days a year when Jews and non-Jews, excuse me, Jews and non-Muslims are able to go to this site, to this actual place, Marat HaMachpelah. Tomorrow, actually tomorrow on the calendar is one of those days. And it always coincides with the reading of this Torah. Um, I wanted to just notice this out loud this week. Um, this isn't the first drash in which I've touched on or talked about Israel. I don't do it regularly. Um, for me, the Torah is so full of juicy wisdom week to week that applies to life right here, right now, in Chicago, in America, despite a lot of time that I've actually spent in Israel, having family there. My Jewish life to me, my Jewish life feels distinctly American even like Chicagoan. I love some of the things about myself that Rabbi Sachs might not have dug so much. I love that I'm both female and a rabbi um, and that we play music here in prayer together and that what we're doing is sort of a cross between elements of conservative Judaism and reform Judaism and uh, neo-Hasidism and Jewish summer camp and all of these are distinctly different like American influences um, I've traveled to Hebron. Maybe, maybe you've been there too. Um, I went with an educational organization called Encounter about 13 years ago. It was a profoundly challenging experience as a Jew. The biblical stories, like the one that we read today, that we read this weekend, that undergird the Jewish people's relationship, historic, ancient relationship to the land of Israel, um, these stories are now inherently political because they happened on land, and land that over thousands of years from the time the Torah was written to the present, um, Arab settlement all over the land that the Bible describes, and that is part of the state of Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, which are now under Israel's jurisdiction. They were occupied in 1967 with the, with the Six-Day War. I just want to notice out loud that we can tell all the stories in the Torah without connecting them to their modern political rootedness, anchor in the land. But every now and again, I think it's actually really, really important for us to name 
that Hebron's a real place, real people who live there. It's actually the largest Palestinian city in the West Bank. So the Jewish story is inescapably bound up with this land. This week's Parsha is just like one of many places that Jews will point to to cite our ancient historic relationship with the land. It's ancient history, and obviously it is profoundly current. And if we close our eyes, look away, don't talk about it, focus on other things, of course we can do that. But, but what I want to say is if we do that, if we do that too much, at the end of the day, we become very ignorant of what's happening in the actual world that is related to what we are doing as Jewish people reading the Torah. And we relinquish our voice in the conversation about how Judaism and the land of Israel and the modern state of Israel interact currently and should interact. I don't want to relinquish my voice in that conversation. I don't want you to relinquish your voice either. Which means that we need to talk about this stuff. And we want to give you the opportunity to learn, to learn more. And, um, you know, I, I know there's, there's some folks in our community who are deeply knowledgeable about, about all matters, about all matters Israel and the land of Israel. There are more people, though, in my experience, who are a little bit afraid to approach the subject um, because you may have an instinct or a feeling or a question, and you actually feel like it's not safe to ask or wonder out loud or be curious or challenge. Because in many Jewish spaces, I know, it doesn't feel like that's okay. You know, sort of like we can have five different opinions about what we think the nature of God is, but we're not allowed to have a multiplicity of viewpoints on this particular very charged, very personal, very Jewish issue. So we want you to bring your pride and your rage and your questions and your wonder and your doubt and your Zionism and your skepticism about Zionism or your challenges to Zionism into the room to learn. And conversations about Israel often start with the end. You know, like you enter into the conversation from the place that you have already arrived or that I have already arrived. And it's kind of hard to listen to people. One of the things that Encounter as an organization, this organization I traveled with, does is teach resilient listening. How to be in the room, how to listen and reflect back what you hear somebody saying. And surprise, surprise, very often those conversations that begin with viewpoints, with opinions, with positions, they don't go very far. I would like to try something different here, at least for now. I would like to try a more Talmudic approach, right? One where the goal instead of winning and instead of persuasion is one of encounter and exposure and learning and hearing and listening and seeing. The air l'chai ro'i, the well where life came through seeing. So many of you might have gotten a note that I sent out today earlier inviting you to join a series that many of my mentors are going to be running. So it's eight Jewish leaders and eight Palestinian leaders 
So school administrators, business people, artists, nonviolent activists, professors, and, and Jewish leaders, Jewish American leaders, the series is being run by Encounter. You know, as long as, as this COVID thing is happening, they're not taking trips into the West Bank, but you know, they're trying to do the work of helping Jewish communities encounter the voices that we so rarely hear, but that matter so much if we are going to have an informed conversation about the current state of reality and the future of this land. I hope you'll join me for these conversations and um, we'll do some, you know, some Mishkan processing. The, the number of co-sponsors across the country is actually quite large. This is a conversation that I think a lot of Jewish communities are thirsting to be part of because it feels different from the way that Israel has been presented and spoken about, often with a particular agenda or end in mind. Um, and that's not what this is. This is actually about encounter, about hearing and seeing and being exposed and listening resiliently. And then we'll, we'll come together to do a little bit of Mishkan processing internally. So we'll let you know when that happens. I want to close. I want to close with a quote from Rabbi Sachs. He um, closes his Devar Torah on this issue, actually, on Jews and Muslims, which he writes in a commentary about this week's Parsha. He says, beneath the surface of the narrative of Chaye Sarah, the sages read clues, piece together, and, and they, the sages, piece together a moving story of reconciliation between Abraham and Hagar, between Abraham and Hagar on the one hand, and Isaac and Ishmael on the other hand. There was conflict and separation, that that was the beginning, not the end. Between Judaism and Islam, there can be friendship and mutual respect. Abraham loved both of his sons and was laid to rest by both. There is hope for the future in this story of the past. And like I'm remembering to when I came back from the gap year I spent in Israel and I saw like on a newspaper box in Evanston, I was working at Northwestern that summer, and I saw that the Oslo process had failed and that the second intifada had begun and like a year that I had spent in a country that actually felt like it was on its way toward, toward a different future than the past I had been taught, um, I'd sunk in my stomach. I, it wasn't gonna happen. And it's been sort of um, an increasing an increasingly depressing situation when we think of the when we think of the prospects for peace. Um, many people won't even use that language anymore. And and so my question is like, what language shall we use? How shall we talk about this with one another? Because I don't think we can just avoid it. And I also don't think that the assumptions that Jewish institutions, at least thus far, have put on Jewish communities in order to step into the conversation are reasonable assumptions anymore. And so we have to be really brave and, and also vulnerable, I know, to bring the questions and the challenges and the ideas that we're coming with in order for the future to look different than the past. 
if we, if we don't bring that, then we cede the conversation and we cede what ends up happening to the folks on the ground and to the folks who, who chime in to be part of the conversation. I don't want us to, to give away that voice. I would like to invite us to be brave and to be vulnerable and see what happens when we step into a space to think and share and talk and listen and listen resiliently and not imagine that we actually know better than the person with whom we vehemently disagree. I mean, look, that's how they feel too. So somewhere there's a conversation to be had. I'm hoping that we can surprise ourselves and one another the way that Isaac and Ishmael surprise us at the end of the story and maybe surprise themselves and their families. If the Torah can do it, I actually think we can as well. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune into Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org slash events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at mishkanchicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan, thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.